The scripture lesson this morning, Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, excuse me, Exodus chapter 1, beginning at verse 15 and reading through verse 10 of chapter 2. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra and the name of the other Pua. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but save the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as a wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Behold, I drew him out of the water. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we, do, we give you thanks for your word, and we do pray that you would use your word now, as you have promised, to instruct us in our faith, to show us Christ, our Savior and King. And may your spirit uh, direct us and strengthen us for the life to which you call us upon hearing your word. Indeed, use this means of grace to impart your grace and favor to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In the movie The Dark Knight, Bruce Wayne, Batman, and Alfred are having a conversation in which Bruce is thinking out loud, trying to figure out why the Joker, the villain, does what he does, what, what makes him tick. He doesn't seem to be like all of the other criminals Batman has dealt with. In response to Bruce, Alfred finally replies, Some men just like to watch the world burn. The cultural context in which we increasingly find ourselves at present seems to support this line of thought. 
men and women bent on destruction in keeping with the satanic ideologies to which they hold. The events last week at Covenant PCA and the Covenant School provide an all-too-real demonstration of this reality right in our own community and is a moment in the history of our lives that will endure. For decades, we have been in the midst of culture wars on various fronts and to varying degrees, though largely in the realm of ideologies, in keeping with Paul's instruction in several places in his epistles. In 2 Corinthians 10, he writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Or in Ephesians 4, in relation to the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry that is needed, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Or a couple of chapters later, when Paul famously declares, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are rather accustomed to thinking about spiritual warfare in these terms, and rightly so. And we recognize that our first means of battle is right here, engaged in corporate worship, that the Lord uses our prayers and praises for His purposes, that He goes before us to fight, and that our trust is in His power and name. Yet, as became jarringly clear last Monday, there are physical manifestations of this conflict, a reality to which our brothers and sisters in the Lord who live in uh, who live under the threat of persecution in other countries can readily attest. We typically think of persecution against God's people primarily taking place in China, India, or um, an Islamic-governed Middle Eastern country or African country. If you follow the monthly persecuted church prayer calendar, then you recognize this to be the case. But maybe you've also noticed an increasing number of petitions for believers in the United States. God's people enduring under enemies. Even the threat of physical harm isn't new in the history of the world by any means, even as evidenced in our study of the first 14 verses of chapter 1 last week. We noted the obvious connections back to Genesis, a, a number of ironies in the text, and the first two stages of oppression that the sons of Israel had to endure on account of the tyrannical policies of the king of Egypt. And so the story continues in the text before us this morning. And I trust that we'll find here a timely word for, for our faith and of what we are to further believe and do and what our outlook and conduct can be as we move forward in faith. Well, in verses 15 and 16, we read of the king of Egypt's third stage of oppression against the Israelites, and it's worse than the slavery. And we're introduced to two new characters by name, the Hebrew midwives Shifra and Pua. And the word midwives is used seven times. The name Shifra means pretty or beautiful, and Pua seems to mean good-smelling or, or splendid. And if we're paying attention, there's an interesting contrast that we should note between these two named women and every other character in this section. No other specific names are used, not for the king of Egypt or the husband and wife from the tribe of Levi or the, the, the daughter of Pharaoh or the sister until we get to chapter 2 and verse 10 when Moses is named. So there are all of these important characters in these scenes. 
some of whom are named later in Exodus. But right now, the spotlight is on Shifra and Pua. Well, you know the story. You just heard it. You know what Pharaoh is asking them to do. Kill Hebrew baby boys. Now, whether these two midwives are the only two midwives for all the Hebrews is debated. Some contend that they're the head of what would have been a midwife guild, which is certainly possible, but there's no mention of any other midwives. However, they do seem to hold some type of prominent position if they're summoned and having conversations with the Egyptian king. He instructs them that they, when they're performing their midwifery duties, when they're bringing forth babies and they see them on the birth stools, now that's how the English translations typically render it, though the word could also be translated stones and referring to male reproductive parts. But when they see that it's a son, he wants them to kill him, but if it's a daughter, to let her live. Now, it could be that Pharaoh's encouraging them to fake some stillborn deaths or deaths of natural causes at birth. But immediately notice something about the language here. Pharaoh doesn't say boy or girl, but son or daughter. What's significant about that distinction? Well, son or daughter denotes relationship. And that makes this much more personal. In a sense, Pharaoh is declaring war on sons. He wants them dead. He understands how things work. If sons die, you can't propagate the nation. He's trying to wipe the sons of Israel out. But Pharaoh is also declaring war on the daughters, at least indirectly, because he's attacking the bride, which is one of the Exodus patterns we noted in weeks past. Why is Pharaoh okay with letting the daughters live? Well, because that means more potential brides for Egyptians or concubines or female servants, perhaps. But it, but it would be a a further erasing of the Hebrews and gradual form of genocide, so to speak. The conflict established between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent from Genesis 3.15 is clearly on display here. And there's an important daughter theme that's established here in the rest of chapter 1, which continues on into chapter 2. Who's going to possess the daughters, God or Satan? And the daughter imagery also applies to the church. The church equals daughter Zion or daughter Jerusalem. You know, we read those and think daughters coming from Zion or Jerusalem, but it should read more like a name. See, Jesus Jesus is God's son and the church is God's daughter. And if we go back to the sister bride imagery that we first encounter in the garden with Adam and Eve, and then again in the Song of Songs, To think of Jesus as the son, as the brother, as marrying the church as the daughter, as the sister, then the pattern seems pretty consistent. So what do we learn next about the midwives in verse 17? That they love babies and can't imagine killing them, that their maternal instincts were too strong, their humanitarian spirit too great that they couldn't kill the newborn boys? No, the text tells us they feared God and repeats this fact again in verse 21. See, their actions are driven by their theology, their fear and reverence for the Lord. They're principled in their ethics. They have integrity. These women are acting with wisdom. And so they don't do what the king of Egypt commanded them to do. They don't comply. They disobey the tyrant and let the male children live. Somehow the king finds out and calls them in to give an account for why the male children are still alive. And what do the women do in verse 9, uh, 19? For all intents and purposes, they lie. They deceive the tyrant. 
The Hebrew women are much fitter than the Egyptian women and give birth quicker before the midwife can get there in time. Now, some commentators and scholars want to contend that the midwives could be telling the truth, and that's possible. But why have midwives if you, if you don't really need them? Not having the right categories for different types of lies, they are forced to try to unnecessarily explain things away. But there are a couple of somewhat humorous things to note in their reply. First is the way in which Shifra and Pua portray the Egyptian women as inferior. And second is the fact that the king seems to be completely clueless as to how birthing really works and seems to accept their story as factual. Now, as a relevant aside, we should understand that there are four kinds of lies. And from what I understand, Augustine was the first to posit these categories and then later Luther articulated them as well. Now, the first is the playful lie, which is a jest or joke and would also include... um, an actor in theater and movies. You know, they're pretending to be something that they're not and will say things as characters that aren't factually true but are accepted because we know they're pretending. You know, if you've ever seen uh, the movie Galaxy Quest, it actually has this theme as a significant plot point. The second is the obliging lie, which is a lie to protect the innocent. The Ninth Commandment, bearing false witness, has to do with speaking in a manner against your neighbor. But the obliging lie can be a use of the tongue that provides protection and can actually be a fulfilling of the Ninth Commandment. We often use the examples of those who lied to Nazis during World War II in order to protect the Jews or others, and that could be used or an example of uh, a case of an obliging lie. The third is the military lie, which would constitute uh, some form of deception of the enemy. Uh, the story of J.L. in Judges 4 and her tricking Sisera in order to get him to fall asleep so that she could drive the tent peg through his head is one good example of this. Another would be Joshua's tactics at Ai in Joshua chapter 8 and how part of their force they sent against the city and the other part they set in ambush. And then when the first force went up to the city and then fell back pretending to be defeated and all of Ai came out against that first force, then the force in ambush went into the city and burned it and then the retreating force turned around And the army of Ai was squeezed between the two forces of Israel and defeated. I suppose to a far lesser degree, if you go on vacation and set your lights on timers, you're practicing a form of deception. You're appearing to be home in order to deter burglars when you're really not there. Are you lying to the burglars? Are you breaking the ninth commandment when you do so? Of course not. You're exercising wisdom. Then fourth and finally, there's the destructive lie, which is a violation of the Ninth Commandment and would involve some form of destroying your neighbor with your tongue by what you say. And while we've made this point on previous occasions, when a woman in Scripture lies to the seed of the serpent, when the bride uses this tactic, it's an eye-for-eye revenge on Satan, on the serpent, for his deception of Eve in the garden. This is the woman's weapon. This is the tactic she can employ We saw this with the patriarch's wives, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, in varying circumstances. You know, women didn't have the power to take up the sword in the ancient world and fight. Shifra and Pua aren't uh, going to lead a political revolt. They're not in a position to do that. So they use the means available to them, and they disobey through righteous deception. And what is the result of their disobedience? Verses 20 and 21. 
And God caused good to the midwives, and the people became great and became exceedingly vast. And it was that the midwives feared God, and he made for them houses. God bringing about good likely reminds us of creation, but the midwives are cause for the increasing of the entire nation. What's more, God made houses for them, or households. Now, of course, not physical houses. You know, they didn't suddenly suddenly have a bunch of riverfront rental properties at their disposal. No, no, the Lord made families for them. In other words, God is clearly rewarding their actions, their disobedience and deception of the king of Egypt, a pharaoh, whose name you might recall means great house. Recall from last time, there's you know this this competing house or houses theme of sorts going on, and that's subtly here again, as Shifra and Prua prosper as their families are built for preserving sons of other Hebrew families. Well, then the oppression hits stage four, and we read in verse 22. And Pharaoh commanded to all his people, saying, All the sons born throw into the river, and all the daughters you will let live. And what appears to be happening is that Pharaoh's murdering of the Hebrew boys uh, has gone, it goes public. What he sought to do subtly or covertly through the midwives, he now throws caution to the wind and gives a national decree. Now, something that's interesting is that the Hebrew text doesn't distinguish Hebrew sons only. It says all the sons born, which could imply that Egyptian sons were to be thrown into the river as well. While I doubt that's what the text is saying, it's possible and interesting to consider. You know, did the king's tyranny and paranoia go so far as to include a blanket murdering of all sons to seek to ensure that the Hebrews died too? Again, I doubt that's the way to understand it, particularly given the next part of the account. And it wouldn't make sense for him to reduce the number of Egyptian sons. But sin and idolatry can cause irrational behavior. And here in verse 22, we're presented with with waters of death. It's possible that the boys would have been slain and then thrown in the water, which means the water would have turned red with their blood. You know, what's the first plague that Yahweh brings against Egypt? turning the Nile River and all their water to blood. What's the last plague? The death of the firstborn, the death of sons. Yahweh is going to revisit upon Pharaoh and Egypt what they did to the sons of Israel. There's also a bit of a a Noahic theme here, even as that picks up in the next section in chapter 2 and verses 1 through 10. And so to whom are we introduced in verse 1 of chapter 2? A man from the house of Levi who went and took a daughter of Levi. And clearly the implication is that he took her for a wife. But notice some continuing themes that emerge. The man is explicitly stated as being from the house of Levi. And since he and his wife are both from Levi, then the brother-sister theme emerges again. Of course, this doesn't mean they were actually brother and sister. Uh, The tribe of Levi has expanded significantly by this point. But symbolically, they're from the same house. Also, the daughter theme emerges again with this mention of the daughter of Levi. And then a few verses later, there's the mention of the daughter of Pharaoh some five times in verses 5 to 10. In the latter part of chapter 2, which we'll hopefully consider next week, whom do we encounter? Well, Jethro's seven daughters, one of whom becomes Moses' wife. So there are daughters all over the place here, and it may be subtly raising the question, is there someone to save the daughters? Who's going to come to their rescue? A Savior needs to be raised up. And that origin story, the origin story of Moses, begins here. And it's marvelously told. 
So the woman conceives and bears a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, literally a good child, she hid him three months. Now, a couple of things. We have Genesis echoes with the language of taking, seeing, and good, and not in a negative way at all. And we have the first of seven uses of child or the child in this section. The good or beauty theme isn't uncommon in Scripture as there are notable mentions of of beauty in relation to significant characters such as the wives of the patriarchs, uh, David, Esther, and others. And this isn't to convey that they're favored on account of their good looks, but as that they're used particularly by God, they reflect God's beauty, God's glory, who is a God who created a world full of beauty. So the mother hides the child for three months. And there are three-day, three-month, three-year themes in Scripture and often associated with resurrection. Clearly, the mother reaches a point of crisis and can no longer hide the child. And we don't need to question or doubt the veracity of that statement since it's what the Holy Spirit tells us. We have to take it at face value. So what does the mother do? Well, she took for him an ark made of bulrushes or papyrus, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, which would make it watertight, and puts the child in it and place it among the reeds by the riverbank. Notice that there's a sense in which the mother obeys Pharaoh's command when she puts her son in the river. And the mother literally builds an ark for her son. Now, this is the same word used in Genesis of Noah's ark. And it's only there and here that this particular term is used. The word for the ark of the covenant is a different word. But what's the symbolism here? Well, the waters that were killing other baby boys are not the source of destruction for Moses. He's preserved as was Noah and his family, when the world was destroyed by the flood. The Lord preserved a leader in Noah, and he's doing the same here with Moses. And as he created a new world out of water in Genesis 1, and then again in Genesis 8, so there's a sense a new world will be created out of water with Moses leading the sons of Israel out of Egypt. And notice that the mother puts the ark in the reeds along the edge. You know, we shouldn't think that she set him out in the current uh, to be taken down the river. That wouldn't have been a wise thing to do at all. Well, the suspense is mounting as to what's going to happen, which brings us to the final section of our text in verses 5 through 10. What information are we immediately presented with? The daughter of Pharaoh went down to bathe upon the river. Now, perhaps this keeps with the fact that the Egyptians were fastidious people. Perhaps there are other reasons. I even suspect that there might be some symbolic birthing imagery going on here, but it's hard to know for sure. As noted earlier, the daughter theme continues, and we're told that her maidens walked along the edge of the river. The text tells us that it's Pharaoh's daughter who spots the ark, and she sends one of her maidens to retrieve it, and she, Pharaoh's daughter, took it. And clearly the ark had a cover because she opens it, and she saw the child, and behold, the babe was crying. Why does the baby cry? Why are we told that? Is it just so that Pharaoh's daughter will immediately feel sorry for him and her natural maternal instincts will kick in, which will ensure that the child is spared? It could be. But there's also a sense in which the child represents Israel's suffering and is to be identified with the people. And the daughter of Pharaoh has compassion upon him. Notice that she immediately identifies him as one of the Hebrew children. Now, from all that we can tell, one clear implication here is that Pharaoh's daughter defies Pharaoh's command to kill Hebrew baby boys in the river. She lets him live. The mandate against Hebrew babies is still in effect, as the mother's actions indicate. But we probably shouldn't think of the mandate as being indefinite, 
Otherwise, we'd assume that one of the explicit reasons later given for the exodus would be the murdering of the baby boys. Now, as verse 4 tells us, the child's sister stuck around to see what would happen to her baby brother, apparently having gone to the river with her mother. And in verse 7, she seems to have no hesitation to speak directly to Pharaoh's daughter, offering to get a nurse for her who could nurse the child. So Pharaoh's daughter commands her to go in verse 8, and the girl gets her mother, the mother of the child. Verse 9, And said to her daughter of Pharaoh, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will give you, I will give your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Now, this is a pretty swell arrangement, isn't it? You know, the child's mother gets the child back, and now she gets paid to, to take care of him. Well, what other Exodus theme does that match? Wealth in the midst of oppression. See, the, the child's mother gets richer, which also compares with the experience of the midwives. There's prosperity in the midst of adversity. And then verse 10. And the child grew, and she brought him to the daughter of Pharaoh... And he became to her a son, and she called his name Moses and said, For from the water I drew him. Now, interestingly enough, the Hebrew meaning for Moses means drawn out, and so there's a sense that Moses is a second Noah. The Egyptian meaning for Moses is son, and we find this uh, used in other names. For instance, uh, the name Ramses means son of Ra or son of Re the Egyptian sun god, or Tutmosis, son of Tut. Now, there's a little bit of debate as to why an Egyptian princess would use a Hebrew name, and that's a fair question, causing even some to contend that Moses' mother named him, but that doesn't seem to be the clear reading of the text. Perhaps Pharaoh's daughter asked for the meaning or somehow knew it, but I don't think we need to sweat too much about it because there's a clear theme of adoption that's being established. Moses is the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And that's significant and ironic because once again, Pharaoh's evil intentions are thwarted by women, one of whom is his own daughter. One scholar made this interesting observation. The last attempt to put an end to Jesus, the crucifixion, had an unexpected result in the resurrection, just as the final attempt to kill the Israelite boys had the unexpected result of elevating Moses to prominence. So we, we leave our story here for the time being. And though it's not the emphasis at the moment, the fact that Moses has an older sister, Miriam is explicitly mentioned later, so maybe she's the sister in today's story, as well as an older brother in Aaron, whom we find out is three years older than Moses. All of this means is that Moses is the younger brother. And this is in keeping with the younger brother as deliverer even as the older is serving the younger themes, so clearly are established in Genesis and seen throughout the rest of Scripture and ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, the younger brother, the second Adam. Well, what are some further principles for our faith to consider in light of this story? Well, first, that God has his agents in the right place at the right time. Now, who does God use in the first part of the story? Well, the Hebrew midwives. And what do they do? Their job. They help the babies to be born. But of course they do it fearing the Lord. Clearly they were presented with a significant ethical decision. And who knows what incentives or protections Pharaoh offered to them. But they chose obedience to the Lord first 
their first loyalty was to God, as ours should be also. In one of his letters, Pastor Samuel Rutherford remarked, Duties are ours, events are the Lord's. And what's that mean? Well, that, that we're called to do what we're supposed to do and leave the results to God. We can't control the results. That's not up to us. But we can do our duty. We can be obedient in what is in front of us and endeavor to do it faithfully and to the glory of God. And, and that's what each and every one of us has set before us on a daily basis on our respective callings of vocation, home, and church, and family. Also consider Moses' parents. You know, there's almost a sense in which you can read the text that this man from the house of Levi took a wife and had a child in defiance of the king's decree. Now, chronologically or historically, that doesn't appear to be the case. But liter- literarily, it can read that way. What's more, we're told, we're told in Hebrews 11.23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they, because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's decree. We don't need to be afraid and we shouldn't be governed by fear of men, but rather trusting the Lord to bless our obedience as we are directed in wisdom, which begins with the fear of the Lord. So let us find encouragement in the example of Shifra and Pooh and Moses' mother and father who took a faithful stand for God, trusting that God will take care of us even in the midst of bad circumstances. Second, we should understand that the use of deception, of uh, the, the obliging lie, is still a godly tactic at our disposal. In Matthew 10, Jesus tells the disciples, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents, and innocent as doves. What does it mean to be as wise as a serpent? Well, for part of the answer, we have to go back to Genesis 3.1, where we read, Now the serpent was wiser than any other beast of the field. And how did the serpent exercise his wisdom? How was his craftiness expressed? What did he do? He deceived the woman. So the implications of Jesus' words is that to be wise as a serpent means to engage in acts of deception. Again, this is a principle of warfare and it is fitting when the serpentine deceiver is deceived by serpentine disciples. Now, what kind of circumstance is Jesus sending the disciples into? What does he say? They're going into the midst of wolves, ravenous beasts that may even be dressed up like sheep as he teaches in Matthew 7. Wolves eat sheep. Sheep, on the other hand, do not eat wolves. Jesus is sending them out into this war to be devoured. Even this is part of the strategy of the war. They, like Jesus, must be devoured by the wolves. Sheep must die for the life of the world. But Jesus gives them these tactics to use. Be like serpents. Use deception to outmaneuver the enemy. Be shrewd in dealing with the enemy. The sheep need to employ the tools at their disposal to seek to preserve their lives and advance the mission. You know, when Paul claims his Roman citizenship to escape Jewish persecution, that was a shrewd act. And we shouldn't hesitate to readily employ similar tactics. Third, and perhaps this is the most sobering, we have to recognize that there's a concerted attack upon children today, even upon Christian children, upon our sons and daughters from the transgender community, amplified through social media and publicly supported by the civil magistrate. 
The drag shows specifically targeted at children are obvious. And we might think we don't have to worry about them because we don't have our children in public schools. And that's right and good and as it should be. But we, knew, we, we do need to be aware of social media, our children's exposure to it, particularly our teenage daughters. Dr. Jeff Smith with, uh, I'm sorry, Dr. Jeff Myers with Summit Ministries was recently interviewed on the Steve Dace Show, and he's co-authored a book, Exposing the Gender Lie. And one of the points that he made, and others agree, is that, that this transgender um, issue that we're facing is a social media contagion that this issue wouldn't have nearly the amount of of visibility were it not for social media. The hashtag trans has some 50.2 billion views. That's B billion. So while our children aren't being exposed to certain public expressions of this movement, are they being exposed to it online or through social media? We're even seeing it in television commercials. Um, Watching a little bit of basketball yesterday and noticed a trans character in the commercial. If you have teenagers regularly on social media, especially daughters, what steps for protecting them are you taking, if any at all? And it might even be good to consider if teenagers need social media, but that's a discussion that can be had later. And teenagers, if you are on social media, are you being aware? Are you being careful as to what you're exposed to, as to what you're watching? Now, I don't mean to sound like a fear monger. That's not the point. Nor do I want to sound like a Luddite, as though uh, this technology is bad. That's not the point either. But neither can we be, ne- be naive about what is taking place in our society, even as the gas pedal seems smashed to the floor, accelerating toward the edge of the cliff. Besides accountability for our children, what else can we be doing? Well, chiefly demonstrating... Biblical masculinity and femininity. Creating a social environment at home that's preferable to what's going on in the metaverse. Parents, we also need to take take stock of what kind of example we're setting for our children through our own use of social media and technology, etc. I realize that for many, um, our, our line of work is closely connected to technology. And of course, there are plenty of funny things to see that are perfectly fine and And sometimes that's one of the best uses of the Internet. But let us not exchange social interaction with real-life flesh-and-blood images of God with images on screens. Let's be sure our priorities of time and attention are in the right places and with the right people, creating incarnational community that's attractive and far superior to what is offered elsewhere. You know, we, we have been created for this. We've been recreated in Christ for this. So let us gladly and obediently give ourselves to this work, to this life, unafraid of tyrants and their minions and their wicked schemes. You know, as agents of your God and Savior, faithfully serve Him in your calling, seeking first His kingdom and righteousness, confident that he is a king who, having conquered death, decrees life. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to strengthen us by your word, that we might be further directed by it, and that we might 
obey it gladly and fully to your honor and glory. Give us more wisdom, we pray, and may you help us in the days to come. And may we go forth in courage and in faith in service to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.